This is History West Midlands. Mary MacArthur, the angel of the workers. Mary MacArthur, the finest of them all. Bold and bright and breezy round the world. In 1921, the brilliant and charismatic trade union leader Mary MacArthur died aged 40. In her short life, her activism and leadership had been responsible for raising the awareness of women's poor working conditions and encouraging them to speak out against injustice and inequality. Mary MacArthur is perhaps best known for the prominent part she played in the women chainmakers strike in Cradley Heath, Staffordshire in 1910. The dispute which lasted two months, ended in success, with the women receiving the country's first minimum wage. As the leader of the country's first all-female general trade union, the National Federation of Women Workers, MacArthur travelled the length and breadth of the country, ensuring that women received better pay and working conditions and the right to union membership. In this programme, the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, talks to Cathy Hunt, whose new biography of Mary MacArthur explores the life of this fascinating campaigner. Cathy, you've just completed a biography of Mary MacArthur. Who was she? Well, Mary MacArthur was one of the most brilliant leaders that the British trade union movement has ever had. Her name is not one that everyone is familiar with. Yet in her short life, and she died aged just 40... She achieved more than most people do who live to be twice that age. And everything she did, she did for the women industrial workers of the country, who at that time had little voice of their own, were seriously underpaid and often working in poor conditions, hidden away from the public gaze. I believe her early life is something of an enigma. She was born to a family or a social life which you wouldn't have expected to produce a young radical. Well, in many ways, that's true. Her father ran a successful drapery business and the family had a pretty comfortable lifestyle in Scotland. Mary's education was much rounder than that of many middle-class girls in the Victorian era, whose families often wanted a little more for their daughters than to turn them into nice young ladies, to make a good match and to run an efficient household. But Mary was sent to a school run by the Glasgow School Board, and one which had a strong curriculum of academic subjects as opposed to one focused mainly on domestic subjects such as sewing and housewifery. She left school when she was 16 and spent a while in Germany. It does seem that she was bored when she returned to Scotland and she took on the role of bookkeeper in the family business as well as doing some part-time journalism in Air, where the family now lived. But Her social life apparently involved the activities of the Primrose League, which was intent on supporting and upholding the principles of conservatism in Britain and the empire, almost the polar opposite then of the principles she followed after the age of about 19. So was there a single event, a Damascene moment, where she discovered that she wanted to be a social campaigner? There appears to have been, yes, and it's a story that Mary loved to tell. She likes to say that she became a union worker by complete accident at the age of 19 when her local paper sent her to write a skit at a Labour meeting in Air. 
And she says that she'd gone there to make fun of the radicals who held their meetings in a miserable hole above a fish shop. But while she was there, she said on her frivolous errand, she became converted and joined the little band. She used to say that she went to the meeting to scoff, but she remained to pray. The story is told slightly differently by a chap called John Turner, who organised the meeting. And he spotted her, he said, as soon as he came into the room. He described her as a laughing, vivacious, fair-haired girl, clearly the leader of a group of young women who were gathered around her. And so after the meeting, he went up to Mary and asked her to join the union, presumably knowing that the others would follow. She thought she couldn't because she worked for her father's business. But John Turner said, yes, she could. And it went from there in a very short time. She wasn't only a union member. She was representing her union, the Shop Assistance Union, at congresses and conventions. And she made sure that the Air Branch became one of the strongest in Scotland, with lots of women activists involved in its running. And this was a very important phase in the history of the Labour movement and of the Labour Party, particularly in this area of Scotland. It certainly was. And the year that Mary MacArthur became involved in the Labour movement, 1901, was a hugely exciting time to become a trade union activist. The Scottish Trade Union Congress was only four years old and trade union membership was on the up, particularly among unskilled and lower paid workers. And Scotland was the birthplace of some outstanding figures working tirelessly to advance the cause of the labour movement. So while Mary was involved in journalism, the name Keir Hardy, the first secretary of the Scottish Labour Party, could hardly have escaped her attention. Hardy had been elected to Parliament in 1900 as an independent Labour MP for the second time instrumental in encouraging alliances between socialist organisations and trade unions. And there were lots of speeches at public meetings, of which there were several in air, radical, passionate, exciting. And Mary would have either seen those, attended those, certainly been aware of those. Then Mary was drawn to London. What did she do there? When she did make the decision to move... It was to the flat of her friend, Margaret Bonfield, who was working for the Shop Assistance Union. And Margaret Bonfield was also involved with the Women's Trade Union League, which is a sort of TUC for small women's trade unions, offering women guidance and support. Mary had very quickly found herself a job as a bookkeeper in London. But knowing that the post of secretary to the Women's Trade Union League was vacant... Margaret Bonfield took Mary to see Gertrude Tuckwell, who said that she remembered Mary MacArthur coming to her Westminster flat. A tall slip of a thing, dressed in black, she said, very silent but intensely attentive, with, she said, an air of subdued excitement, which made one feel the air alive all around her. Mary got the job, and she took over the Women's Trade Union League, and in no time at all expanded its membership and showed London and the rest of the country what it could do for women workers. She made quite an impression on London when she came. The press, when she first arrived, described her as Tall and slim, with fair hair and blue eyes, and only 24 years of age. She is quite unlike the typical woman's agitator. 
The Scotch girl is adored by the band of London working girls whom she gathered round her and who, under her guidance, have constituted themselves volunteer trade union missionaries. And who were the key figures in the labour circle that she met? As I've said, she already had the support of Margaret Bomfield and also the support of influential women like Lady Amelia Dilk. We also know that she knew Keir Hardy, leader of the Labour Party, from her days in Scotland. And she was bold enough to ask him for help with strikes or issues going on. According to the press, she was the first woman to be invited to a House of Commons dinner as the guest of Keir Hardy. And Mary remembered the occasion when... I went down to the House of Commons, a girl from the country, very much in awe at that time of the great assembly of these wonderful beings who were members of Parliament. I had to see Keir Hardy about a matter affecting some telephone girls. As he was speaking to me, one of the great and mighty ones came up. I do not remember who he was, but he was some great personage, and began to talk to Hardy, praising something that Hardy had said. Hardy looked at him stiffly and coldly and said, I am engaged just now. I was surprised and looked wonderingly at him, and he saw my wonder and said, I'm no caring for their soft souther. At this time, I think she especially focused on the conditions of women working in what we now know as the sweated trades. What was life like for those women? Well, you're right. The greatest part of Mary MacArthur's work was among women industrial workers, many of whom were on scandalously low wages, excessively long hours and very poor working conditions. This didn't apply exclusively to women, but to a disproportionate number of women. And Mary MacArthur's point was that, in fact, women's average wages across the country were generally so bad and significantly lower than men's that there was a need for a new term. And so she referred to super sweaters, those working on wages so low it was impossible to live adequately. As an example of just how low these were, at the time a male labourer's wage could be at about 25 shillings a week whilst a super-sweated woman's wage could be as low as just three to four shillings a week. And for this, she might have to involve the whole family in working in the home. And the fact is that women's wages were low because bosses could get away with it. They assumed, wrongly, that most women worked only between leaving school and getting married, and that men, in contrast, needed a higher wage, often called a family wage, because he had dependents to support, whether he was married or not. The reality was that thousands of women also had dependents, were widows or single parents, or needed to work to help their husbands to make ends meet. And how did Mary respond? Well, she had two main responses. One was to campaign for legislation to change and improve them, namely the introduction of a minimum wage into the worst paid of the sweated industries. And her other response was to make sure that women bound together, that they stuck together into trade unions to present a strong, united front to employers who were exploiting them. She had a favourite story she used to tell women about the power of the union. A trade union is like a bundle of sticks. 
The workers are bound together and have the strength of unity. No employer can do as he likes with them. They have the power of resistance. A worker who is not in a union is like a single stick. She can easily be broken or bent to the will of her employer. An employer can do without one worker. He cannot do without all his workers. If all the workers united in a union, strong as a bundle of sticks, complain or ask for improved conditions, the employer is bound to listen. The sticks are the union, the workers bound as one. We have the strength of unity and victories can be won. And how effectively did Mary draw these women into trade unionism? Well, she realised that the small isolated societies or unions of women workers that were being supported by the Women's Trade Union League weren't strong enough to resist employer intimidation. So in 1906, she founded the National Federation of Women Workers, not only to pull these small unions into one, but to create a union for all women who were excluded from men's unions or those who'd been ignored by the labour movement as being simply too difficult to organise because they were isolated, because the nature of their work was casual and so on. The Federation became a powerful vehicle for many women, and branches were formed around the country, often arising from strikes, although Mary made it quite clear that she wasn't a fan of strikes per se, but she always pointed out to women workers that unions, in fact, were a way to avoid, not instigate strikes. And if they'd been in the union in the first place, there wouldn't have been a strike. But during this time, there were actual strikes in which Mary was involved and they have become iconic in the history of the trade union movement in Britain. Yes, there were some hugely successful strikes during these years and you could generally find Mary at the forefront of them. Strikes such as the strike of box makers in South London, the Corriganza strike in 1908, and then, of course, perhaps the most famous of all, the 1910 chainmakers strike, which took place in Cradley Heath in the Black Country. This is perhaps where Mary is most well-known. She took on employers who'd sought to bypass the terms of the newly passed Trade Board Act, which had finally guaranteed a minimum wage for the chainmakers. Chainmaking was an industry in which the largest chains were made by men in factories, but the smallest ones were often made by women working in forges in their backyards, work given out by middlemen, and where wages were among the very worst in the country. Mary MacArthur knew that bringing the women out on strike was a risk, but it was a risk she was willing to take because she used all her publicity skills to make sure that the world knew that these women were being cheated out of what was rightfully theirs. So donations came in from far and wide. So much money was raised that at the end of the strike, there was enough money to build a workers' institute in Cradley Heath, where the National Federation of Women Workers branch could meet, there could be union meetings, social events. You can still see this wonderful building at the Black Country Living Museum, where it was relocated from Cradley Heath a few years ago. So far, we've 
talked about the trade unionists, the labour activists, but she also had a domestic life. Who was her husband? Mary married William Crawford Anderson in London in 1911, when she'd been in London about eight years. He was a fellow Scot, and they'd met nearly a decade earlier, when both were young union activists. According to Mary Hamilton, who wrote a biography of Mary MacArthur in the 1920s, Will first proposed to Mary in 1903, and she rejected him. Will appears to have accepted her rejection. He wrote, If you have fully and deeply persuaded yourself as to your future, I shall not meantime try to shake your resolution. I suggest that Miss MacArthur has not yet been attuned to her deepest and sweetest music, that she is not yet, wonderful woman as she is, so rounded and complete as she will be, and that she has capacities which have hardly yet been stirred. The two clearly remained very close. And I wonder if Mary only agreed to the marriage when she was established in her career. She's now the Secretary of the Women's Trade Union League. She's the Secretary of the National Federation of Women Workers. Mary and Will were, by all accounts, a very close and loving couple who supported each other in pursuit of their professional ambitions as well. Mary, for example, campaigned twice for Will at by-elections as he sought to become a Labour MP, before finally succeeding in 1914, when he became Labour MP for Sheffield's Attercliffe division. So at the start of the First World War in 1914, they'd been married three years. How did the war impact on their lives? In terms of her personal life, she'd experienced a great loss in 1913 when her first baby was stillborn. She needed quite a period of rest and recuperation to help her to recover and deal with her grief. So when it appeared that war was imminent in August 1914, she and Will were absolutely appalled and demonstrated with many other Labour figures for peace. When war was declared, however, Mary immediately threw herself into helping those affected by it and she didn't look back. Her defence of working women took her into new schemes and initiatives, finding alternative employment for many women who'd become unemployed as a result of war. This saw her working alongside some quite unlikely figures. Some saw this as a bit of a sellout as she worked within the civil service to launch workshops. And even more unlikely, she started to work with Queen Mary, the wife of George V, who actually sought out Mary MacArthur in her endeavours to provide relief work for these women. And what was the impact of the war on Mary's workers, the role of working women in industry, and society generally changed during the war? Well, I suppose the main thing was that her workload increased dramatically. Not only was she organising women into trade unions, she was negotiating with government departments and ministers for fair pay for women munition workers, battling to ensure that the promises that were made to women were honoured by both government and factory bosses. She also had to work with other unions to ensure maximum strength 
for the labour movement. And certainly this was not always easy because many men were very wary of women taking up jobs that had not been done by women before. And of course, women went into all sorts of new types of work during the war. The skilled craftsmen feared that this would bring down wage levels after the war. And so their first priority was to shore up their own position before they extended anything like acceptance of the women. During the war, Mary's reputation as a tough union leader and champion of women workers increased. It became imperative for top government ministers, including the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, to work with her to keep good relations in the munition factories. And how did the war affect her domestic life? Well, in July 1915... Mary MacArthur gave birth to her second child, a healthy girl called Anne Elizabeth, always known in the family as Nancy. So bringing up a child in London amongst air raids, an excessively heavy workload, and having an MP husband who was presumably away quite a bit was challenging and exhausting. On top of all of this... Mary had to look on as her husband, Will, took a great deal of criticism for his continued pacifist stand. He, along with many other Labour activists, campaigned against the introduction of compulsory conscription for men, which was introduced in 1916. And he avoided conscription himself by insisting that his place was supporting the men and women of Sheffield from the House of Commons. And when the war ended in November 1918, Mary took on a new challenge. She did. I mean, certainly her union work continued, and one of her priorities was to make sure that women, if possible, wouldn't lose the advantages that they'd won during the war. But at the same time, you're right, there was a new direction for Mary. She was one of a small group of women who stood for Parliament for the first time, and this was in the general election held just after the end of the war in December 1918. She, in fact, was the first woman to be selected by a political party to stand for Parliament, and she was chosen in Stourbridge to stand as a Labour Party candidate. Great choice, for her to be there, close to the chain-making area of the black country. She was a hero to a lot of people in that area. And it was a remarkable campaign that she ran, full of her normal energy. During the campaign in Stourbridge, her friend Margaret Bonfield remembered how on one occasion Mary was speaking from the car and she saw a procession of workmen coming straight from the forge Silently, they surrounded the car. Nobody was quite sure whether they were friend or foes. Suddenly, they began to sing the song, popular song at the time. Kind, kind and gentle is she. Kind is our Mary. And when they'd finished the song, they simply lifted their caps and marched away, leaving Mary MacArthur smiling and weeping, absolutely dumbfounded with amazement. But she was unsuccessful. She was. She came second. At the time, she gave vent to her frustration at being forced to run the campaign in her married name, which, of course, was Mrs Anderson. She said she was really annoyed with the returning officer. 
And when it was her duty to thank him after the poll had been declared, she reproached him in Iago's words with robbing her of her good name because she said had she been nominated as Mary MacArthur, she would have secured many more votes than she did as Mary Anderson. In fact, it was also a tough election for Will Anderson, her husband, who lost his seat in Sheffield, almost certainly because of his pacifism, which in the weeks after the end of the war was hugely unpopular with the electorate who were being encouraged to support revenge against the Germans for the pain and the losses suffered during the war. And tragedy really struck Mary and Will only four months after the end of the war. It did. In February 1919, during the Spanish flu pandemic, Will Anderson came down with pneumonia and nothing could be done to save him. And when he died, he was just 43. Now, this was a tragedy of enormous proportions for his wife and his young daughter, but also for the world of politics, because many people saw him as a future leader of the Labour Party and even a Prime Minister. And how did Mary respond? This was a terrible blow. They were such a close couple. Concerned friends, those supporting her at the time, suggested that she and Nancy should go away, try to get some rest, recover. And so in the spring of 1919, they went together to America. Now, this wasn't most people's idea of a holiday. There was a lot of work. There was a lecture tour. But understandably, Mary, to whom work was so important, needed to work at this time. But so sadly, she became ill herself. She did. That was first noticed on her second trip to America in the same year, in 1919. On the ship home, she was apparently living on ice and oranges, complaining of some sort of internal trouble. In 1920... She had two major operations for ovarian cancer. And after the first operation, she appeared to have been told that she wasn't going to recover. Because in April 1920, she wrote a letter to Nancy with the instruction that it wasn't to be opened until Nancy's 14th birthday. It's utterly heartbreaking to read. My dear wee girl, this is just to tell you that there is only one thing will make me sorry to leave this place, and that is that I may not surround my precious little daughter with a sheltering love through the years of her childhood and girlhood. Be good, dear heart, and do something worthwhile if you can. At any rate, try to. Never cease to aspire. That is the secret of happiness. A stretching out quite leads to other things. Oh, my dear, my dear. This is goodbye to you, though when you read it, I will have been long away, and you will not remember the light grey eyes or the sound of my voice. I pray for your happiness, my darling, and for complete fulfilment. Your mother, Mary. Mary died on the 1st of January, 1921. The warmth of the tributes that poured in for her leave us in no doubt of the impact that she made within and far beyond the Labour movement. And what happened to the trade union 
that Mary founded after her death. Well, by some incredible coincidence, Mary died on the day that the National Federation of Women Workers amalgamated with a larger mixed-sex National Union of General Workers. Her union was in good shape, but she knew that in order to secure its future, it needed the strength that a much larger union could give it going forward. She'd always been adamant that her union, this all-female union, was a training ground for women, and that once they'd learned the union ropes, they should be organised alongside men. What do you think was her legacy and how have her achievements affected women today? She'd be pleased to know that the protection of women workers in Britain is now in the safe hands of strong, dedicated activists. Activists who won't accept anything less than pay parity, employee safety, respect for everyone. But... Here in Britain, and particularly in other countries, we still have sweated trades and we have a lot of women employed in those trades. How would she have reacted to that over 100 years on? She would never have rested until it was dealt with. I think the most important thing that Mary MacArthur did was to bring things to the public attention. And if she thought today... There were still women working in hidden conditions whose jobs were under the radar. Then she would have been on the warpath. She would have dealt with that, making me wonder perhaps sometimes if the experiment of her union was over too quickly. So do you think we need a woman's trade union today? Not necessarily a woman's trade union, but we do need to make sure that everybody who is working are organised, are not forgotten, are not neglected, are not hidden away. The hotel workers who we don't see, who have cleaned our rooms before we even arrive in them. The office cleaners who do such sterling work before we get to work in the morning. We need to remember these women, these people. This is what Mary MacArthur did. This was her life's work. And we need many more women and men like Mary MacArthur to make sure that sweated labour becomes a thing of the past. What really intrigues me about Mary MacArthur was her motivation. She had self-belief. She had courage. She was utterly determined to make a difference. And I think there's one quote from one of her contemporaries that summarises that. Yes, Beatrice Webb said that she was neither preeminently beautiful or preeminently intellectual, and yet in any committee, in any group or organisation in which she worked, she was always the centre of attraction, the axle round which the machine moved. I think that the origin of this outstanding personal significance was the combination in her nature of an exuberant and contagious joy for life with a consistently held social purpose to which, when necessary, she sacrificed physical comfort and worldly success. It was by the charm of her comradeship that she led men and women along the path she desired them to take. Mary MacArthur, the angel of the world, Mary MacArthur. 
Kathy Hunt's new biography, Mary MacArthur, The Working Women's Champion, Writing the Wrong, is available for order direct from the publishers at www.historywm.com or from Amazon and bookstores. A minimum wage for making change, we help to push it through. The songs in this programme were written by John Kirkpatrick and are taken from Townsend Theatre Productions' Rouse Ye Women by Neil Gore. Mary.